hello, and welcome to the Lodgers Assorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. As always, I'm Simon Howell. I'm joined by Kate Renabom. Hello, everybody. And for this momentous occasion, uh, we have brought with us Mr. Adam Naiman. Hey there, how you guys doing? Pretty good, although not as good as you, considering, uh, as people may be able to hear in the background, you're actually at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival right now. Yes, I, I, am, I am surrounded by orange signs everywhere. <laughs> Just orange orange signs and logos. Uh, pe- people on uh, Twitter, I think I gave a bit of a preview of this too, but we, the three of us together have had a difficult time trying to find a time that works for all of us because not only do we have our regular jobs and daily lives, but I was at the Telluride Film Festival and then had to travel back right as the finale was happening. And then Adam had to start Toronto and Simon had to start Toronto. And Finding a time that works for all of us has been exciting, but now we are here and we're doing it and it's good. And we've had some time to think about the finale, I think, in the process, which is probably not a bad thing. No, I, I think it is. It might, in fact, actually be a good thing. And I, I have to um, give some props to you, Adam, for being maybe the first person that I saw with the cojones to have a public piece on the finale up yeah. on the ringer the following morning. Well, I don't know if that's cojones or just when you have a nine-month-old baby, you're just up, you know? <laughs> and I, and I, I, the ringer, I had a kind of floating deadline, which is like, you should probably get something up in the next day or so. And I just decided to do something with, with something that, with, that's sort of complex and monumental as Twin Peaks is risky, which is, why don't I just start writing how I feel right now? Yeah. And subsequently, I've gone and read some of the more measured, considered pieces. And I'm envious of those writers because they sort of took their time. But I also stand by how I felt in that initial piece because it, I had just seen it. I mean, I can't say anything other than that's how I felt. So, I don't know. I think maybe more so than your average piece of television, the space right after watching this episode seems to have been a very like integral part of how people are, are reacting to it as a whole, right? I mean, the kind of general emotional... Um, extremity that seemed to follow in the wake of it. Uh, I feel like I, I feel like I have to make a bit of a confession because I had a hell of a time actually watching the finale episode. Um, I was in Telluride and I was working, and as a result, basically because I didn't have access to like a good television, it was very difficult to see the episodes. Period. Um, I had a plan with friends of ours where we were going to basically try to watch it on a bigger screen. Uh, and we had to wait till the final film of the night, uh, in order to do that. And unfortunately, at that point, it was sort of 1 a.m. So then it was about 1.30 before we realized that this plan was going to fail and we couldn't actually watch the finale on a big screen. So then at about 2 a.m., I had to head home and watch it on my tiny, crappy laptop screen. Uh, and I was so tired, but I knew that if I waited, I was going to get, like, spoiled on it and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't have time the next day anyway. So, all to say that I didn't really watch it under ideal circumstances, um, not least of which was when I actually had to open it up because Showtime has such a crappy video player. Uh, I kept being shown the final shot of both episodes. So I saw the final shot of like how the finale ended before I got to watch the oh, finale. Oh, man. Yeah. So it was, I, I feel like despite having, you know, dedicated months of my life to Twin Peaks, for some reason I angered like the Twin Peaks gods and <laughs> was not allowed to watch the finale <laughs> under great circumstances. So anyway, as a result, it took me a a little while. I don't feel like I had quite the sort of very extreme emotional reaction to the finale that people did just because I was exhausted. But I can tell you, it took Olivier, I don't know, two days at least to recover from it. I mean, he was quite devastated by it. And I know other friends who were in a very similar position who sort of felt like the whole next day was just kind of wiped out because they were so upset and bowled over by it. Um, 
which is saying something, right? For like a television show, I think in 2017, that it that it really seemed to affect people that deeply. Well, the thing that really surprised me about it was, you know, if you've seen the original and you've seen Fire Walk with Me, you know that I mean, people seemed really taken aback by the ending in terms of how you know, quote, inconclusive it was, and you know, I I'm sure we all saw. There was so much outrage on Twitter and in other places, and some people uh, wrote some some longer pieces that were not so friendly as well. I mean, admittedly, that hasn't been, I think, the the the, the broadest reaction in terms of people who've who've hung on this long. But I did wonder with, with for those people, like, have you seen a Lynch project yeah. before? Like, you had to have known this was coming. I mean, when we get, um, we can break down these two episodes a little bit more um, later. But when we get that sort of very clear, you know, climax and conclusion, um, sort of the sort of climax and, and conclusion you might have reasonably expected from a more sort of conventional project, about halfway or three quarters into part yeah. 17, that's the, you know, from then on, you should really know that everything, you know, the rest of this is not going to follow um, a typical sort of season or series finale trajectory. But really also everything else Lich has ever done should tell you that. Yeah. Well, if I can, if I can jump in on that, as again I'm surrounded, I'm going to pretend that the people standing behind me talking are famous, right? <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm feet away from Richard Gere. It's unbelievable. Um, I was going to say to the to that point, it's not just that the conclusion comes earlier than expected, but it almost it has an almost satirical kind of uh, cartooniness to it, at least insofar as the like you know, punching Killer Bob Orb out of existence, you know. Like I don't, I'm not saying that Lynch is making fun of the material or not taking it seriously, but I found that the gathering of all these characters in one space to witness this showdown between good and evil, the definitiveness of seemingly that victory, and the ease of it, right? The ease with which the sort of evil coop or malevolent coop seems to be dispatched. I mean, it's playing a game with expectations about closure and finality. I mean, people sort of said that there was almost more explanation and more exposition and more resolution than they ever could have expected, which is why then, when the last hour and 15 minutes have just this complete creeping dread and openness, it's hard to know how to watch it. Mm-hmm. I just thought that structurally, those last two hours were brilliant, uh, you know, giving you an ending that seems almost too good to be true and then just thoroughly undoing it which is of course also what the plot becomes all about the idea of coop literally undoing the reality of of of, of the show itself yes oh man and there's so much we, we have to get into here because i but i mean i think i think i should just echo what adam maybe sort of implied there and say unequivocally at the beginning that i think this is you know again one of the greatest moves i've ever seen on television i think this is this is really and not just on television i mean i think this is sort of a masterpiece no matter how you cut it i don't think that's hyperbole i think the finale the episodes 17 and 18 really cement the position of the return as uh, you know, Lynch, maybe, I don't want to say Lynch's masterwork because it's that's a, a silly game to try to play that game. But I, I do think that this is a masterpiece, and I think that the returns ending only works to open up the whole previous series and add more to it and bring more to it. And that's not that's not only just that it's sort of inconclusive and we're going to be continually in this position of going back and thinking about the questions that it asks in terms of the plot moves. Um, but I think it. It makes some radical moves in terms of, again, recasting everything that's come before. And of course, this is, this is most obvious around the question and the idea of Laura returning to the center of the four. And like, I think on this podcast, we've been pretty aware that we've been hoping Laura is going to come back to it and paying attention to these hints that she might play a major role here. But I think, 
oh, I don't know. We might have to build up to some of this stuff. I, ha- I have some I have some points about what is going on with Laura's return towards the end, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot to say here. So I don't know. I don't know. Do you want to start, Simon, by should we break down 17 a little bit and then go into 18 that's, or how do you want to do it? That's not a bad idea. And I mean, I think a good place to start is, um, you know, you were talking about exposition in part 17 and how people got more exposition and more resolution than they were really expecting. And it starts uh, immediately, pretty much, with yeah. that sequence where... Um, where Cole breaks down Judy or Joe Day, uh, which, as other people have explained, um, supposedly translates to explain, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is sort of the, of all the dangling threads that are left by these episodes, it seems like the the one that people have the most thoughts on and are, mo- and are the most frustrated by is the the fact that you know, 20, 20 some odd years after fire walk with me, we still have no idea who or what Judy is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think we do. I mean, I think I, I, when I read that thing afterwards, the idea that Zhao Day translates to the verb to explain, um, I mean, on the one hand, you can sort of snicker at that. But on the other hand, I think it's it's absolutely integral to, like, what Lynch is doing here. I mean, I think the idea that the, the, the ultimate negative force in the universe of Twin Peaks is explanation and is answers and is is the ends of things. I, I think that's brilliant. I mean, I, I love it. And I don't think Lynch is being insincere when he says that. I mean, I think he is, again, just sort of operating in a very... Um, disarmingly obvious way in the sense of, of him him literally saying something to the effect of Judy like makes people disappear. Once something has been explained, we lose interest and things go away. And if that wasn't a very clear signal in the opening minutes that this episode wasn't going to tie everything up and we weren't going to get some romantic reunion between Coop and Audrey and we weren't going to get like the story of what happened to um, Becky and you know, I... I I don't know what is. I mean, I think Lynch is very clear that he is aware and he's doing this on purpose and it's not cruelty. I mean, I think again, this is the mistake that I get kind of frustrated by when people think Lynch is trolling them or being mean to them or just sort of, you know, saying, screw you. I I think it's the opposite. I think Lynch is sort of doing the, maybe being the bad guy in the sense of taking the hit so that we can keep being invested in this world. Like, so that, so that we can continue to sort of have this fascination and not let Judy sort of ruin things for us. Um, that's one version. On the other version, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested with everybody's idea that, you know, Sarah Palmer is Judy and like, <laughs> this is my evidence of now I'm still fascinated by all this. Well, I would say that, you know, to the, to the idea of explanation or, or even as you're describing it, I mean, we, we, on this podcast previously, you had me on to talk specifically about Fire Walk With Me. And there's an aspect of that in the first 30 to 40 minutes of Fire Walk With Me, again, almost that parody of exposition and symbolism and meaning, right? And at the beginning of Fire Walk With Me, you're almost seeing like a version of Twin Peaks without the soul, or you're seeing almost a parodic or a kind of a, a ghostly version of, of Twin Peaks. And I thought he was working in some of that same mode here, plus the fact that he actually goes back to Fire Walk With Me to make that connection clear, actually putting the footage from both Fire Walk With Me and the original series, you know, you know, into this. So I guess what you're describing about him as a uh, not, it's not cruelty, it's not trolling, it's a constant interrogation of his own work, and it's tropes and its archetypes and its cliches so i think he's he's doing that to some extent here i mean as for the question of you know is sarah palmer judy i actually thought that you know you could make if if we were if you were making a ranked list of characters who played out this season differently than you would expect wouldn't you guys agree that sarah in her limited screen time would be close to the top right she 
She begins precisely where you might think as this kind of grieving shell, and we know that Grace Zabriskie can play grief, but then that scene in the diner where, you know, she pulls her face off and becomes a monster, <laughs> um, you know, sort of showing maybe what's lurking underneath that. And then the scene of her stabbing the, the picture. I mean, I was watching the episode alone at home at night. My wife had gone to bed. My baby was upstairs. I have no problem admitting it. I mean, it's just terrifying. Yeah. It's absolutely terrifying and we have never seen sarah palmer who tends to be an acted upon character maybe someone who's disturbing because of the grief or because of the loss suddenly being put into that monstrous role i mean there's something very suggestive about that even if to explain it to juday or, or explain it totally ruins it she is she had the arc i think that was the most unexpected even if she only had maybe less than 10 scenes overall and as other people have pointed out she can't seem to destroy the picture you know, yes she she smashes and smashes and smashes, and yet this most iconic image, um, I mean, I guess prom image and uh, and dead image are sort of in contention for most iconic Laura Palmer image. Um, but the fact that it can't be destroyed is, seems very significant. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating. Like, upon rewatching these episodes for the third time, I only, I only made the connection that the sequence where Laura, or sorry, the sequence where Sarah is trying to destroy the image comes immediately before the scene where Laura disappears out of the woods the first time when Cooper is walking with her. So there is, a, sure, there is some connection there with this idea that maybe she is Judy and this is sort of the, Sarah is Judy and this is the, this is the catalyst that's, that disappears Laura out of the space that Cooper is in. Sure, that's one reading. I mean, I think the other reading is what you're pointing out. Simon, which is again, Laura's um, image and like fixity in this universe is is indestructible. I mean, that no matter what is happening, we cannot seem to undo this this story and this mode and this image of Laura. And I and I think we'll we'll keep coming back to that because it plays a, a bigger point later. But um, the other thing I, I thought we could use this as a transition to with the image of Laura's uh, face because I think it is maybe the most formally interesting aspect of uh, episode 17. I mean, the stuff with Fire Walk With Me in it is stunning, and we can keep talking about that. But um, I thought the most formally interesting aspect of episode 17 is, of course, the sequence where when Cooper arrives at the sheriff's station, we have the big Bob fight out. Um, at some point, Coop looks and sees uh, NATO, and then he splits, right? Coop's head uh takes this sort of close-up overlay position over the image and and there are so many things that we could talk about sort of what's going on there and why that's happening but the first time i saw it the first time the first thing it made me think of was again a kind of structural relationship to laura's uh head being sort of overlaid over the opening credits um the kind of uh perpetual sort of sense of yeah of this sort of disembodied face um overlaid over something and I don't know. And I still don't feel like I figured this out entirely. I do think that um, Cooper's face overlaid over this image ultimately only works to highlight the differences of his position in the return and the finale from uh, someone like Laura or the women. And we'll keep talking about that. But um, I just thought it was a stunning move. I think it's a stunning sequence still where Cooper looks at... Uh, Diane, we eventually realize this is Diane, at Diane, the woman that he has raped or his double has raped or something, and he splits in two. And like this split is not clear. I mean, we have this sort of very uncanny um, sense in which time is slowing down as one coop is looking at her but he seems to be now in a different sort of universe and the other coop is moving forward and is in this sort of Wizard of Oz dream space of the sheriff saying to everybody goodbye. Um, 
And all of this then presages uh, the next episode where Cooper, the good Cooper and the bad Cooper become clearly one and we just have Cooper. And it's this sort of mixed space that's very uncanny. But anyway, so there's a lot in there, but I thought we should bring that up. I think we talked about it the last time too, but it's just so evocative what Kate is saying. That floating head, especially the idea of a head in an orb or under glass, I mean, that's the last shot of the Elephant Man. That's the first shot of Dune, right? You know, and so when you're talking about Sarah can't destroy the image, Lynch can't destroy the image. There is something about this vision of innocence in a in a in a in an under glass, right? I mean, yeah. even Glinda, the, the 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 Glinda witch figure at the end of Wild at Heart, right? So this Twin Peaks series has obviously done an incredible amount to expand the cosmology and mythology of Twin Peaks. It's also tied very much to the cosmology and mythology of David Lynch overall. And you could almost look at the series from one angle as just an inventory of Lynch's greatest hits. There's callbacks to Eraserhead. The casting brings us back to Blue Velvet. Obviously, there's there's images and themes and tropes from Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. I mean, you, you could do it that way if you wanted to, right? Yeah. But when you're talking about Coop's face, or even I was just thinking that, you know, Killer Bob in the end ends up being a face in an orb too, which isn't really what he was the first time, right? Uh It's like Bob being born in that glass circle that he exists in throughout the show makes him Laura's equal, not just in terms of good and evil, but formally speaking, they're the same. But I was going to say that 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 image of, of, of Coop's face and consciousness superimposed over everything i was just thinking on a very basic level have you ever seen that before no i know me yes exactly it's it's actually one of the simplest effects that you can do in cinema i mean that's something that someone would have been capable of and i think about things like fritz lang and 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 dr mabuse like there are moments where characters faces become superimposed over reality he's not the only person who superimposed a face over a scene but at that length and at that level of like it's not very opaque you know you can see through it it's transparent i just i've never seen someone do that before it's the simplest thing, but it's absolutely unforgettable, far beyond what it means, right? Yes. It's just, yeah. what, a, what a piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I, I don't think it's so much the specific effect as the duration, A, of the effect. The fact that yeah. it, I, I think Cooper's head is up on screen for something like something like eight or ten minutes. Um, I might be exaggerating slightly. And there's that, and it's also when it happens. You know, the fact that we have this superimposed head plastered all over basically the climax of the entire show like this is the 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 culminating sequence of so many sort of plot threads and it should be this moment of um or the sequence of uh great resolution and triumph but then having it's yet, yet another one of those many many signals we have in this episode of like this is not to be taken as a straightforward resolution and i i can't really think of a more definitive way to signal that than to have this melancholic phase take up you know half of our visual stimulus for the entirety. Yeah, and, and there's something very particular, too, about the fact that the the head arrives, uh, as you say, Simon, at this climax here, where really and truly we are getting the only moments in the whole series that, that quote, you know, that could serve as maybe what fans want in terms of, like, good Coop's return to Twin Peaks, right? I mean, this is Coop's moment with the town and, and saying hello to people that we haven't, we've been waiting 30 years for him to engage with, and this should be this moment where he gets to be the kind of hero and we get to participate in it and enjoy it. And, and the head effectively undoes all of that. The head, um, destabilizes all of that. It sort of disallows us this experience of like Coop's 
subjectivity, right? We're not we're not able to lose ourselves in in Coop's goodness and and sort of command of this world the way that we would like to. The head very much sort of pushes us out of that and is continually reminding us that like, you know, this this quote good Coop, this sort of Coop with agency and everything here is is not the only coop, is not the full coop, like that, that in some senses it literally is a fantasy. And of course that that is, um, that's doubled down on when we get to the next episode and, and this sort of good coop is revealed to again have been, I don't know, a fantasy, a dream, like this, this split between good coop and bad coop both disappear along with this world of sort of Twin Peaks as it was, you know, with, with coop saying like, I, 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 I hope to see you all again. And it's, and it's sort of revealed very much to have been like the dream that presages this sort of quote reality that we end up in at the end, which is something totally different. And, and of course, like people could read that differently, right? I mean, you could read the ending as a emanation from Twin Peaks. And I, I don't think it matters. I don't think there's a right one or a wrong one. Um, but I do think it's really fascinating that like, Lynch seems to be more and more invested in these final episodes with really undoing the idea of there being a quote, good Cooper that we're going to return to. People have had a lot of interesting discussions about how to watch it. Like watching the show, I mean like literally how to sit and watch it for broadcast, right? Like yeah. you can't watch it all at once. You can't binge view it. That's by design. People who've PVR'd it now or who are going to wait for whatever home video release can kind of watch it all at once. I think that the effects that Lynch gets emotionally and dramatically from it being split up are really important. Perhaps nothing more so than at the end of episode 16, there's such excitement that Dale is back, and not just that he's back, but that he's taking charge, right? Because Dougie's passivity is so paralyzing and so narcotizing, like, Dougie doesn't get anything done. But of course, if you watch those episodes carefully, Dougie succeeds at everything. Yes, Dougie yeah. also brings he brings people together. His home is mended. You know, he he's successful in business. He disarms a murderer. When Dale comes back, the show allows itself this moment of triumph. Saying the music comes back. Dale puts his suit on. He says, "I'm the FBI." I totally got off on watching that. It is amazing. Then one week later, from this first second of that new episode of Seventeen, mm-hmm. Dale accomplishes nothing. Yeah, he's completely sidelined. Even during the big fight with Cooper, it's very interesting that it's like Lucy who shoots evil yes. Cooper, right? Yeah. That, that showdown you're expecting between good and bad that you would think the show would want to do because you've had McLaughlin playing, you know, weirdo Dougie and McLaughlin playing evil Cooper, and you're sure that they're going to really battle. I mean, evil Coop's kind of been shot by the time Dale shows up almost. Mm-hmm. And that was when I realized that what I was watching was really disconcerting because he brought, as we've said before, all the elements in together for this kind of conventional, possibly cathartic climax. But the way that Dale is off, it's not just once he goes through that 430-mile thing and maybe becomes Richard and maybe is in the Judy universe. I mean, we could talk about that forever. It starts right from when he arrives in Twin Peaks. Yes. He's off. He's He's, he's off. And, I mean, can we say enough about Kyle MacLachlan's acting? I mean, you could argue, depending on how you watch the show, that he's four or five different characters at different times. And yes. the way I think that his acting in that 17th, let's call it the 17th and a half episode, you know, like <laughs> the long walk section of the end, the trance-like walk section at the end of yeah. 17 and of 18, mm-hmm. I mean, he is just completely emptied out and hollowed out of any personality or affect. Yeah. And then in the diner, the effortless combination of, like, Law and order Dale and sadistic evil Cooper without yeah. McLaughlin seemingly raising a finger. Like, this is incredible. He, um, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's enough plaudits for him. And unfortunately, he'll, I'm sure he'll, he'll never get the 
the plot of Till Deserve, but at least we can we can bestow them here. The other thing I wanted to mention about that scene, I mean, the sequence of um, Cooper's face superimposed over this climax is that it really reminded me this effect of him watching this all unravel, which also has the effect of, of making it seem like he's witnessing a memory or he's witnessing yes. um, a vision like he's he's like he's experiencing a very sad form of deja vu. Um, it really made me think of uh, La Jete and or 12 Monkeys, um, you know, this this notion mm. of of uh, of witnessing um, witnessing a prophecy come to light. Um, or, you know, obviously more, more directly there, you know, witnessing your own death as a child. Um, it's not quite that literal here, but, you know, I, I have been reading those quotes, those Lynch quotes circulating about his fascination with time loops. You know, this notion of um, this, this, I think the example he mentions is uh, someone in the 1920s men- just mentioning Lee Harvey Oswald, I think is, is the way he put it. And he, he, he clearly wants to, he's, he's interested in, in wringing um, some pathos out of like a very, uh, familiar sci-fi concept, but he does it in a way that is uh, really. I, if, I, I think that's just one possible interpretation of what he's going for with this sequence. But um, I think he's able to access that very elliptically in a way that most people wouldn't be able to. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's so much to talk about there. I mean, I think with the time loop thing, um, the yes, it's it's so constant in, in Lynch's work, and and realistically, it kind of begins in in Lynch's career with. Fire Walk With Me, because Fire Walk With Me is, is the first time that Lynch sort of uses a film to to go back and create a time loop within a diegetic world that he's created, right? Fire Walk With Me takes place before Twin Peaks, but it also seems to take place after Twin Peaks because this dream happens after the end of the original series, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he sort of does that first, and then after that we have Lost Highway, and then we have Mulholland Drive, and these... Um, films that are increasingly sort of the the elliptical kind of like figure eight almost as a narrative structure. Um, we have all of that. The other thing that I find fascinating about, about what you just said, Simon, is um, I think the way in which Lynch is so interested in how those particular modes work as something that you can really only have in, in cinema, right? That cinema both like allows this, but it also... Um, creates it as a, as a problem for us. Like, so for example, in, in Twin Peaks, in The Return, where we have Lynch looking back at himself 25 years earlier in uh, Fire Walk With Me, this idea that cinema kind of gives us this ability to like review ourselves from an external perspective which seems to seems to allow for like clarity and knowledge and like self knowledge on the one hand, so that would be sort of positive. But then on the other hand, it also creates the space of like it can create a space of sol- of, sol- of solipsism and being stuck and being split effectively, right? Because you need there needs to be a self looking at the self that's being looked at, and this is again this this thing here where uh, Kyle MacLachlan is split across the two. Um, Kyle's, I mean, in Inland Empire, Laura Dern sort of looks at herself from outside. And again, we can, maybe we can move towards episode 18 here because we also have a really amazing sequence where Diane, once they cross over into the other episode, uh, encounters her double, right? And I, I want to come back to that, but I do, I did just want to say before we move past uh, episode 17, some things about the ending of 17. So we have the amazing sequence where, uh, Coop is walking through the woods with Laura, uh, where we have this sort of reworked footage from Fire Walk With Me, some of which looked like it was, um, 
uh, footage that was shot and not used for the original film. Some of it was digitally altered so that it was shots of like Leo and Ronette and Jock in front of the car that have had Laura removed from them. Um, anyway, all of this sort of amazing magic to kind of make it seem like Coop is, is rewriting the narrative in the end of Twin Peaks to quote, save Laura before she is killed. And then we end up in the roadhouse again. And we should, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned like Julie Cruz in the roadhouse yeah. because I, th- I think that was a really fascinating sequence. I've, I've read people, I think Joel Bacco mentioned this and I've read other people talking about how they actually felt like that Julie Cruz sequence was really a problem for them because they felt like it wasn't enough, like that, that, that this was sort of a mistake that Lynch was sort of only showing a part of the song and that we didn't really feel like we were getting this. I disagree. I think it's absolutely purposeful. I think this is Lynch again using the end of 17 to take us back to the space of episode 14 of the original run and Fire Walk With Me, where the only like answer and the only ending is being put in the space of kind of mourning and frustration and limitation. But here in The Return, it's like worse. It's the fact that we we get less. We don't even get a full Julie Cruz song to sort of be in this emotional mourning space. It's this sort of clipped, like non-cathartic space at the end of it. And it seems to end too soon and we're left stranded. Um, anyway, that was my last point about 17. One last other, other, other thing I wanted to say about the superimposition is... It was funny to me when people started to circulate this this idea that 17 and 18 should be watched simultaneously, a la sort of a Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon thing, Uh, in which case that would be an incredibly sly final Wizard of Oz reference. I mean, I thought that was kind of a funny idea for a couple of reasons, one one of which was because 17 already features us simultaneously watching a thing um, via this means of superimposition in the same frame. Um, I don't feel like the split screen notion is a very Lynchian effect. In fact, I don't think he's ever deployed split screen in, in any instances that I can think of. But uh, the other reason I thought it was funny is because I know from my late night shifts at the video store, um, watching Airbud movies at one third speed and then syncing them up with satanic doom metal, <laughs> that if you put anything up with anything else, you will find remarkable moments of synchronicity if you wait long <laughs> enough. So people, trust me, it's not really that special. When you're you're mentioning The Wizard of Oz, I mean, and people have excavated this relationship in Lynch's work for a long time, right? Starting with the fact that he himself has said it. I mean, it doesn't really take great critical acuity to watch Wild at Heart and be like, oh, he's obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. But maybe as we start framing episode 18, I didn't write it quite this way in my Ringer piece, but I... You know, I, I tweeted it and felt bad as I said it, and I'm sure other people made similar observations, but just think about episode 18, not to begin at the end, but maybe just frame everything that happens in that last hour in line of in light of the most famous last line in film history, which is, there's no place like home. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and then you start thinking what, what, what he chose to call his 18 hours of Twin Peaks. It wasn't, you know, Twin Peaks 2 or Twin Peaksier. You know, it's the return. It, it, it's the return, right? Yeah. And, and and the Wizard of Oz has always been one of the most legible, one of the most readable, one of the most plunderable texts for what it says about fiction and narrative and cinema. That it's something that you escape to in a dream. It shapes itself to the contours of your subconscious and your own frame of reference because suddenly you see your life represented differently, more passionately, more vibrantly, more exaggeratedly. But it is still your life, right? Uh, because because you were there and you were there and you were there, um, but then you can't live in it, yeah. right? And you kind of have to come home. And you guys have said already on the podcast, people have written umpteenth variations on the idea of 
homecoming, you can't go home again, what does it mean to return? But that stuff to me is where the hair-raising, terrifying, unforgettable affect of that last episode comes from. That after everything we would have wanted from 18 hours of Twin Peaks, which is to go back to this thing that we all love and obsess over and are maddened over, going back to it is, is horrible, right? Yeah. Or, or, or boy, does it, does it take a lot out of you? That, that was my feeling anyway. That in the 18th episode, the idea of deriving any kind of nostalgic, fanish pleasure from this material was, was just gone for good. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think you're right on the money there, Adam, where there's this clear division between sort of 17 and 18 around this sense of home uh, and what that means. And I think, I love that you brought up this that famous uh, Wizard of Oz sort of quote about uh, this question of whether you can go home again. I once I once saw a, a truly wonderful lecture uh, at, at Harvard by um, a professor here named Eric Rentschler, who is wonderful. And his the whole lecture was about uh, the Wizard of Oz in relation to... Um, questions of home and cinema again. And I think he showed the clip from Mad Men where uh, Don Draper is watching the carousel, his own presentation about the carousel and sort of realizing his own lack of connection to home. Anyway, at the end, Rick sort of builds up to this idea of um, the line of like, if cinema is, if cinema is our home, you know, we, we all want to go home and we can, it's, it's a home that we're all so desperate to go to and we can live in it and love it while we're there but we can never stay. Like, it's a home we always have to leave. And I, I mean, I think that's the kind of home that is happening in 17, right? Where we have this, like, really beautiful, wonderful goodbye to, like, the, to the town and these people and this sort of sense from McLaughlin of, like, how much they have meant to him. And, you know, like, that kind of home is there. And then we turn to 18. And I think what happens in 18 is that instead we are moving into a different kind of space. And what's going on there is, and, and there's many ways that I want to talk about this, but um, this idea that, this is this is Coop. This is one person projecting onto someone else what they think their home should be and what they think they should do. And this is Coop saying to Laura, we're going home. And when he says that to Laura at the end of 17, he says, we're going home right before she disappears. I mean, you rewatch it again and you think, on what planet is, is anyone able to say to Laura Palmer, we're going home and thinking that that's a good thing to say to her, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is this this is the woman where like home home has been like the destructive force of her life. I mean, I so anyway, that's just to open this up. But I, I thought that idea of home was really fascinating to get into this. No, I mean, what Kate, what what you're saying, it's it, it's quite shivery what you're saying. Like you, I, when you're talking about it, I feel the episode all over again. And I think that one of the reasons I think Fire Walk with Me is such a masterpiece is because whatever you say about the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, and there's a lot to say about them. They're really kind of digressive. There's a lot of detours. There's a lot of subplots. There's a lot of stuff that real Twin Peaks aficionados and fans love, but that's kind of ancillary to the main plot. Mm -hmm. And Fire Walk With Me really, really hammers home that idea that this is a show about Laura Palmer, about this violation, about the intimacy of the violation, that it is the intimacy, the terribleness, the irreversibility of that violation that destroys this Twin Peaks universe and creates that kind of ripple effect. And that's why when you think back on the season as a whole, I mean, you guys don't have to talk anymore about episode eight. And Kate, I should say, having just on the streetcar this morning read your essay in the new CinemaScope about episode eight, that is a brilliant piece of writing. Oh, and thank you. Is it out? You, you, you're, you're literally telling me right now that it's out. Is that <laughs> Everyone should read the new CinemaScope, not least of all because Kate's piece is just so good. Okay. But I was thinking about the... Um, 
you know, the episode eight, other writers mentioned this. I think Todd Vanderweff mentioned it, and he's right on. Like, the atomic bomb in episode eight, it's not about reading that historically or, or culturally. It's just, that's what the show is about. You can't undo that, right? Once that has been exploded, you can't put it back in. And so when you have Cooper say to Laura, you know, we're going home, I thought, well, like, Kate, I'm like, yeah, in what universe? I mean, this is a universe where that bomb has already gone off and the stuff has sort of come out after it. You, 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 you can't do that. And it's so amazing to watch a show that is hinged on the absolute good intentions and empathetic intentions of bringing her back to heal, balanced against the impossibility of that and the naivete of that and the hubris of that and the destructiveness of that. The ending of the show isn't just scary because of how it's staged or because of how it's acted. It, it, it's scary because you immediately feel that it's wrong. And I yes. can't remember watching something more than the last hour of this Twin Peaks sequel where I have felt something is wrong for that full hour. It is an yeah. incredible, sustained feat of dread that I am still kind of shaking off of my person. I, yeah, I can't agree enough. And I, and I, and I think there are so many ways to get at how what you're saying but i think I'm, i might as well just sort of like try to dig into my main point about episode 18 now and we can maybe get into the specifics as we go but i think um re-watching episode 18 one of the things that became very clear to me and it, ha- it started, begins at the end of episode 17 as well is is part of what is going on in terms of what is so upsetting about that last hour and a half of television is that effectively what the show is doing what lynch is doing is taking our beloved hero, Dale Cooper, and equating him with Leland Palmer. I mean, Cooper effectively ends up taking the space of of the abuser and of the destroyer. And I think what is so fascinating about all of that is that Lynch is really unflinching in the move that he's making here formally across a couple of different modes of unveiling the desire to fix and the desire to save someone else and the desire particularly for for men to save women, right? In this sort of hero narrative, the Western narrative that we see here, uh, particularly over the diner sequence, the idea of the searchers, right? This this space for the man to kind of sail in and save the woman as, as like the connected flip side of the abuser's impulse, right? Because the hero and the abuser both deny the agency and the subjectivity of the other person, right? I mean, the, the fixer and the hero is someone who has decided that they know better than the other person how they should, how this other person should live and what is the way to fix their life and what is going to be the thing that saves them. And it, it's so uncanny all through episode 18 how we have Cooper continually caught in these sequ- like enacting these sequences where he is ignoring the women around him. He is, um, seeming to be a kind of hero, but at the same time really terrorizing them and participating in hurting them. And this begins with the sequence with Diane, where they drive across uh, this road. And Diane is clearly sort of not comfortable with what's happening and is trying to get Cooper to sort of listen and slow down. And he is set and he's not listening. And so they're going through and they go through and they end up on this other side. And Diane <clears throat> is put back in the space of of again, this relationship that she has been, that we've sort of been exploring with her all season about her relationship to her rapist, right? I mean, she sees her double outside of the hotel and, and you know, this may or may not be this question of like the splitting and trauma of someone projecting someone outside of them is like, oh, that was the person that was raped. It wasn't me. Um, or simply this being an image that she doesn't have ownership over, like her image is for other people and not herself, these kinds of things. You end up in this hotel room with Cooper 
And when you watch that scene, it, it reads as like an encounter between a prostitute and a John. It does not read as an encounter between sort of two caring individuals. Um, and then we have this, this sex scene, which is um, maybe the most upsetting sex scene I have ever seen. Like it is so unsettling for so many reasons. And a lot of that, I think, is that Lynch and Dern and everyone in that scene are very aware that what they are doing is they are enacting the kind of um, the scene of a sexual abuse victim like working to retake control over their relationship to sex and pleasure. I mean, this is literally Diane sleeping with her rapist and like covering his face and, and, and sort of in agony and like this desperate attempt at pleasure, it keeps turning into pain. And I, it is one of the most upsetting scenes. So we have that. And Cooper is completely like his subjectivity is absent from that. Right. I mean, he is just sort of gone. And then he returns and he goes to the diner and he saves, quote, the waitress from these guys, but at the same time is like waving a gun around and seems to be equally terrorizing everybody. Um, there's that. And then this all builds up towards this relationship with Laura at the end, right? Where he is going to rescue Laura and he turns up at her house and she says, I'm not Laura. And he doesn't listen, right? I mean, he needs to make her back into the victim. She needs to be in the space of being Laura Palmer so that he can be the hero and he can rescue her. And he takes her back to the town. And I have other things to say about this, but I, I all just to say that I think it is maybe that I think gets at the heart of what is so upsetting about this ending. It's not just that Cooper is lost and it's not just that things are left unanswered. It's that Coop and his impulse to fix and to save along with our desire as the audience to see him fix and save is being equated with the abuse that first did this to Laura. And like that is... I, stunning on like every level. I mean, I think that is amazing. And I think it puts complete paid to any criticism of this show as being anti-woman or being unaware of what it's doing in relation to women, all of it. I don't know. The other thing about, you mentioned before that this, this notion of, uh, of him being a savior and trying to undo what happened to Laura, there's, there's some serious audience implication in there too, because when we're seeing those scenes of, um, of Laura's corpse disappearing and, we see this reenactment of of the the opening scenes of the original series, complete with Josie and Donna and Pete, which was very strange and very mm-hmm. disorienting. Um, and I don't know about you, but in that moment, I was like, "No, you can't do that. You can't undo the original show. You can't make it so that you know these things didn't happen." Which is like a really like a really unsettling sentiment and a really unsettling feeling to think that like it, it you know it. In a way, you know, un- undoing this this trauma is is the worst of all possible outcomes because then it undoes this show that we like. You know, yeah. it it uh, and it, it places you with uh, you know when you were talking about um, Cooper and his drive to to fix no matter what the no matter what the consequence. It's like we we all need that that violation to have happened to to have you know to have precipitated all this. And then of course we end up in this whole other space with, with this whole other set of implications, but I don't know. I mean, we've talked before about this possibility of Lynch and, and contempt for the audience. I don't read this as, as contempt for the audience, but I do think that there is, he is trying to further complicate our relationship to the original crime and our sort of, um, our sort of vicarious thrill in it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that it's a. I think it's a move. I think it's a maneuver that is born to some extent of age, right? I mean, who, Lynch's own age. Who's Cooper working for, right? He works for the FBI. Who runs the FBI? Gordon Cole. Who's Gordon Cole? He's David Lynch. Like, I'm not <laughs> trying to be. I'm not trying to be cute, but I'm saying that 
those themes exactly can't be present in the original Twin Peaks because I think that the perspective that this show has, which is that, you know, nostalgia is somewhat dangerous and a bit of a fantasy that you can try and change your memories, but you can't change what happened, you know, that you have to accept that certain things are the way they are. Those are things that I think are made by an older artist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because the Wanderer in a movie like Eraserhead, I mean, people have excavated Eraserhead to death in terms of what he's pulling out in that movie, right? You know, it's his own anxieties about parenthood and about being a young father and beginning a family. But when you when you watch it, that feels very true. It feels very specific to one time of of, of, of life, one phase in a person's life, in this case, in a man's life. And even though Cooper himself is not an old man and Kyle McLaughlin is not an old man, I feel like... The kind of things that that you're that you guys are talking about, they have to do with when in Lynch's career he's making it, mm-hmm. uh, and you know he's old enough and has enough distance and has sort of accomplished enough since whatever he did the first time in Twin Peaks that that's kind of where the power comes from. You know, I I, I keep thinking about the line, and again, people have talked about the line a lot. You know, I'll see you again in 25 years. 25 years is a long time, and in this case, I think it is a long enough time. For material that had one set of meanings, one set of uh, of themes, one source of power way back when, it had all those things. I think it's changed. I yeah. think the question of what makes Twin Peaks powerful has just inherently, uh, definitively kind of changed because part of what makes it powerful is that it's endured. And he couldn't have played these games the first time because he wouldn't have anything behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the heft really comes from a return. And, and, and from revisitation. You could have re- he could have written a similar script 25 years ago. He could have created the exact same narrative action over a course of, of 18 episodes of a show like Twin Peaks. And I don't think it would mean or signify nearly as much. Well, and it's, no. it's the sort oh, of move that he's shied away from in the past, right? Like the way that Mulholland Drive was supposed to be um, a Twin Peaks sequel, right? With, with Audrey... Audrey in Hollywood. But then, you know, that ended up not being the case. It's He's never had... This this strict relation, you know, he's he's never been able to resume a relationship with with a world in the same way. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's something um, fascinating too to this idea that that you know Lynch has talked about and and it's been written about extensively in relation to the original show. How one of the driving ideas, like one of the driving fascinations for Lynch in the original show, was the ability to kind of. Um, excavate and and have people confront this sort of violence at the at the center of the kind of domestic space right i mean it's not you're absolutely right adam like that the violation that is at the core of twin peaks is about this sort of familial intimacy but it's also something about the kind of like domestic banality like the idea that that is really where violence lives and so for lynch this sort of fascination lives in this idea of being able to explore that on a television in your living room um and so there's that but then i think you're absolutely right adam that like there is such power that he is able to really mine and completely surprise all of us with 25 years later that that in terms of the fact that what he is doing is making the return show you know again and it sounds trite to say but about that it's about the return of the repressed right i mean this idea that now we're not just dealing with like this sort of violence that was there in the original series we're dealing with the fact that for 25 years we've been effectively enjoying and like cultivating a relationship with that violence through this television show i mean i think um 
like Simon, you, you sort of said something similar and I wanted to read this quotation because it was so great. It kind of bowled me over. I think Olivier found this on like Criterion Forum and I'll, t- I'll say the user. It was mfunk9786. So uh, I, hopefully this person's okay with me quoting them, but, um, they were talking about something that they had read, uh, and so they're quoting someone else, but they had said, you know, in relation to the return, it, it becomes very clear that like Lynch is watching you, you know, you are not watching him. Uh, and he knows that by wanting more of this particular universe, you, the spectator, are robbing Laura from the angels and dooming her to live in our terrible world yet again. And so this is this idea that like we are, we are put very much in the active position of calling Laura back into life here. And we, and, and I think Lynch is sort of wanting us to take some ownership over that. And I don't think that's the same thing as like trolling or being cruel because I think that again, Lynch is very aware that he is in the same position. And I think that, um, what I liked about what you saying there, Adam, like this idea of Lynch as an older artist returning to this and how that that changes his relationship to this material is I think it's fascinating to be able to look at how, you know, this scene with like Julie Cruz singing and and Laura's death, how it happens very much at the famous kind of like aborted halfway ending of the original series in episode 14. And then Lynch reenacts it again at the end of episode 17 and how we can kind of map the differences between those two. And I think in the original series, that ending was very much about... um, you know, just a sort of like uh, unfiltered sadness, like this sort of grief over how could this happen? How could we lose Laura? Like, and, and I think Lynch is very much living that and feeling that. And that's how he's able to do such a wonderful job with it. But then when we return now again to the same scene, I think the sadness is there. But I also think it's tinged with this sort of anger over the fact that that it, it, nothing has changed. Like we're 25 years later and this is the same problem. And I think that if we're going to say, you know, Kyle MacLachlan couldn't save Laura as a figure, I think Lynch is absolutely part of that too. Lynch can't save Laura as a figure, right? I mean, Lynch, I think it, in some senses, like when, when at the end of episode 17, when it's hinted that Laura is going to disappear off the beach, um, my reactions, like Simon, you were describing your reactions. My reactions were a little different to that. My reaction was at first, like, when we see her disappear off the beach, I was sort of overjoyed momentarily. I was like, holy shit, like, is he going to, like, is Laura going to get to sort of live her life and be fine? And this is going to be amazing. And and then very quickly, I realized, like, that's not what's happening. And, and this is just purely wrong. Like, something is wrong. But I look back at that now, and I think how utterly, utterly disingenuous it would have been right? for Lynch for Lynch to do that, like to create that sort of narrative move where he would be letting himself off the hook for having created this narrative in the first place. And I, and I think that it's, I think it's just a real sign of Lynch's like maturity and, and wisdom in a certain sense that, that he knows that we can't do that. And that that would have been utterly disingenuous for us to sort of let ourselves have that as an ending. But I think it's important that he's pointing out how much we want it to. One of the many chilling details in that last episode you know people have remarked on it you kind of can't miss it is that whoever uh is it carrie page is that yes yeah that whoever carrie page is wherever she's from whatever her deal is you know there's the corpse of what looks like an abusive partner boyfriend in the living room so she may have been quicker on the draw than laura palmer was you know Mm -hmm. she may have actually been the one to get revenge on her abuser or her kind of male uh male tormentor but you know she was not reborn, reincarnated, changed. Because again, the question of like where that exact last passage is set, or when, yeah. or who, you know, is very vague. But you know, her life seems to kind of be the same, right? Uh, it's, or 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 a variation on sameness. He does not come to her and find a settled, happy person with children, with a home. You know, he finds someone who looks pretty pretty ragged and 
and looks pretty strung out and has a really kind of, you know, uh, 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 frazzled kind of affect. And, and the body in the living room, I mean, I had already thought that something was wrong long before that point, of course. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm not sure I read that scene exactly the same way. I mean, I do think there is the sense in which in which Laura, uh, as Carrie Page, Laura as Carrie Page's life is 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 not a, a thr- like not a great one. Maybe and it, there's things that are wrong there. But I, again, I do think it's interesting that like as as you point out, like she she was very much sort of in the position of agency though. Like she wasn't waiting to be rescued, right? I mean, she like she had had taken care of this guy like not in a nice way, but she had killed this guy and presumably there's an explanation there for that. And like she, I think she had, she had called somebody, like she was expecting the police to show up and she was waiting for somebody that she'd contacted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I do think there's something interesting there too, like in relation to this idea of, of the desire of like Cooper's desire to rescue and to fix is the sense of, um, yeah, that that necessitates like a, a kind of a judgment on her life, right? Like that, that he gets to be the one to decide that, that there's a better life for her waiting somewhere else. And I, I, th- I think it's fascinating, like, that we're left in the middle trying to figure out what we think is the answer. Like, whether we think, like, th- there's never any definition or clarity given about which life is the better life or, like, really what would be the thing that would help Laura and what would be the thing that would be the right way for her to live. And I, and I think that's fascinating. Um, isn't, it amazing, yeah. isn't, it, isn't it amazing that this show about a detective, that there are two endings to the Twin Peaks series, both of them. There's the ending of season two of the original Twin Peaks. That's like the end, right? And then there's mm-hmm. the ending of this. The show about a detective ends the first time with him yelling, where's Annie, right? <laughs> where's Annie? Where's Annie? And obviously the question is meant somewhat in a sinister and ironic way. And then the return ends with a question, you know, yeah. what year is the yes. idea that, that that this detective hasn't found anything, or that both ver- both series of Twin Peaks end with the detective being confused, you know, being lost. I mean, it ties yeah. much to what you guys are saying, but again, it's just a way of putting like a really fine mm-hmm. dramaturgical point on it. And that's why I think you know I, I don't want to sideline it too much, and maybe I won't sideline it at all. You guys, maybe I'm, I'm, I'll just say this, and it'll be enough. But as much as people talk about. Lynch's work in general, because as a film critic, I, 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 I'm you know, often reading and writing about his cinema. As much as people talk about Twin Peaks and Lynch's work in general in terms of themes and the unconscious and meanings and what it's generating, I mean, it's also just like really good writing of dialogue, you know? Yeah. Really good blocking of actors and staging of actors and choices that are much, much more specific and, and calculated and take more skill and patience than just being a genius, right? And so, you know, I, and, and so I was thinking watching the 18th episode just about little bits of staging, like the way the camera follows them up the drive of the last house, you know, mm-hmm. or yeah. the framing and the sex scene that you're talking about where it's yeah. not just the hideousness of the choreography of covering his face, but, you know, you know, Cooper kind of crammed into the bottom right of the frame away from the camera. There was no possible way to identify with his feelings in the middle of this sex scene. Yeah. You know? It's all too close. It's all too intimate. Like, this close-up of his hand on her breast is so, like, uh, I don't know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because, I guess, because I guess I would say that, you know, formalist readings of Lynch tend to be sidelined in favor of psychoanalytic ones or sort of auteurist ones. And that's because, from those points of view or from other points of view, he's this incredibly capacious filmmaker. Like, it's all there, you know? So people feel like they don't have to start with form the way you do with maybe some more shallow filmmakers or sort of some more easily understood filmmakers. But, you know, I'm at TIFF, so I'm hanging out with film critics all week, and we're watching films. And, you know, it keeps coming up after screenings, over drinks, coffee, because everyone's watching Twin Peaks. Everyone at a certain point is like, we really haven't seen anything here that's as well-made as most of that was. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> we haven't seen anything here that has the same rigor, even with the things on the show that seem to not work, like the ropiness of the CGI and the weirdness of some of the special effects. I still haven't seen something this year that is visualized and staged and edited the way the very best parts of this were. And I just felt obliged to say that because otherwise you could just float off into the ether talking about meaning or lack thereof for an hour. Yeah. Yes. And, and it just, it really just, I, I really just do want to sort of insist on how good this is as craft as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's been a that's been a recurring sentiment that I've been hearing. You know, it's it's festival season in Venice and Toronto and Colorado and soon in Montreal and other places, and I keep hearing that. It's nothing I've seen can can rival the return, and I've and I've heard that at some pretty major festivals, and now I've heard it in Toronto. I have maybe a couple last uh, points just to make about eighteen, and then depending on how long we can keep Adam for, we can see if we want to talk more generally about the show. But um, I two points, and one I couldn't help, I can't resist but throwing it in there from after Adam talking about like the sort of impressive formal construction of this show because I forgot to mention earlier. But um, rewatching today, I just loved this. I thought this was so genius. Watching the scene uh, in the diner, which by the way, the tagline for that diner is breakfast, lunch, diner, which makes me laugh every time, like it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but the the, the diner uh, when when Coop is sort of engaged in this sort of shootout with these guys and and shoots one of them in the foot and something and I, I found it fascinating if you if you slow that down in the image all of the cowboy guys these sort of other guys are all I think all but one of them is wearing white hats and then because this is a western you know if there's a white hat there has to be a black hat and if you and if you look over in the frame in one corner hanging on a post is like a black hat and it's and it's like it's waiting for Cooper. It's like he's not he hasn't put it on yet. But if there's a space in that scene that he has to play, then it's the black hat. And I I just thought that was like genius. I mean, I think Lynch, I think Lynch's work with like staging and props is is forgotten sometimes in terms of what he's doing. But I think it is genius. Um, anyway, there's that. And then the last thing I kind of wanted to say about the end of eighteen. That and this is a, a totally Olivier's uh, point as well. I'm completely cribbing from from Olivier, but um, was. In this moment when you have uh, Coop and Carrie Page or Laura driving and driving and then they arrive in the town of Twin Peaks and I, there is something very uncanny about the idea of, you know, this is our umpteenth, quote, return to this town, right? I mean, we've been sort of returning to the town over and over and over again. And there's something so unnerving to the idea that the final sequence of the, t of the show is yet another return to the town. But because it's sort of Coop and, and Laura arriving in like this car and they're driving past gas stations and it's at night and there's no one around... You know, in a certain sense, this town of Twin Peaks, it, it becomes like every other town, right? This is no longer a kind of special place. It is, it is like every town in America. And I think there is something, I, I think again, that just is yet another level of like Lynch not being willing to let us sit with nostalgia here. This is instead another way in which he is going to hammer home this idea that like the, the damage and violence at the heart of this show is is not specific to this like one invented magical place. This is something that exists everywhere. It exists pretty consistently. And I think it, yeah, it's, it's I, I don't want to just say like it's upsetting at the end because I, I, I don't want to say that the return is only sad or is only upsetting. I mean, I, I personally cannot wait to go back and rewatch all of this. Like I am counting the minutes until somebody in Boston like shows this all on the big screen. I cannot wait to see it on a big screen. Like I, I think, I hope that people out there who were disappointed by the ending or, or feel frustrated or cheated by it or something, I hope that they can, 
uh, I hope they get they can get some pleasure out of the idea of like returning to it and keep going back to it and and not necessarily being too concerned with only the idea that things weren't wrapped up because I think there is so much in this universe and I think Lynch is again only working to kind of keep it open for us and let it be like a home that we can always go to even if we can't stay there right so yeah I mean, before before I have to start packing up to make it to a, a, a film, I just wanted to ask, because we're talking about the very ending of the, the show, can I just you gotta say a little something about Cheryl Lee, which is prompted yes, by what you're yes. doing? Please, please. I want to talk about, about, about Cheryl Lee. Like, you know, we did that Fire Walk With Me episode, and, you know, we were throwing things around about her performance relative to other Lynch protagonists or, or other Lynch women or, or other characters and I, I happen to think that in the career of a filmmaker who's directed some incredible performances especially by actresses Lee might be the best compounded yeah. by the fact that when Fire Walk With Me came out she was considered to be the worst you know and really made fun of yeah I, I think about I mean we're, we're past the point of spoilers here on this podcast like it is not spoiling things to say that the last thing we see on the show not counting I guess the post-credit thing of them back in the lodge is her face contorted in this scream right it's the last thing that we see yeah. And when when she screamed, first of all, her ability to mimic the exact screams from you know her time on the original show, yeah. Fire Walk with Me, is amazing. I mean, it's incredible. Not just that she's the same face, but it's a it's a perfect Xerox of a physical reaction. I mean, so there's that. The tragedy of Laura's screams and, and grief and trauma and the original incarnation of the character is that she's too young, right? Like. Mm-hmm. These are these are horrible things that she's kind of learning, and this kind of virginal, innocent girl is being exposed to the horror of the universe too young. What's so awful about her her scream at the end here for 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 the character is that she's back there now, right? Yeah. You know, I I thought the idea of Laura being back in every way, not just back to Twin Peaks, not just back to her house and all that that implies, but like Cheryl Lee going back into that moment of abject terror and back into a character that in some ways kind of made her career and ended her career at the same time. She didn't do much after Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me because I think the extremes of her acting were often kind of misinterpreted or not appreciated for what they were. And 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 I thought that as much as the show is about Cooper, as much as Cooper is the one with agency, thinks he has agency, and this last season was a complete tribute and triumph of, of Kyle McLaughlin in this character, you know, he ends on Laura. And yeah. he ends on his face. And think about the fact that even in the return where Laura's barely in it, the credit sequence, which is a new credit sequence, it has new shots in it, begins with, you know, Laura's face. So just think of that, that Laura's face under glass, that beatific smile frames the beginning of every episode of Twin Peaks The Return, and then the last shot we actually get is her face in that unforgettable mask of terror. And it is, it is, it is without a doubt the scariest thing I've ever seen on television. Um, the way that Lee just collapses into that, into that gesture. I will never forget it for as long as I live, even if I didn't rewatch it. Yeah, I oh man, I, I completely agree. And I think there is something really stunning to watch in these episodes where, you know, five minutes of Cheryl Lee's performance from Fire Walk With Me, uh, where she speaks she's talking to James in the woods, um, you know, five minutes of that that performance and like you are you are back in it with her as a character and as a as a performer. I mean, it is her performance is so strong and so kind of all enveloping that like you are, you are caught up in like her world and her pain and the, and the way that she is sort of being forced to experience things. Um, and by the way, side note, there is yet another amazing, uh, sort of creative aspect in there where Lynch, um, 
uses that sequence from Fire Walk With Me and, and sort of incorporates Cooper in the woods watching them, it, like that becomes the reason why Laura screams. And because in the original in Fire Walk With Me, she screams at nothing. There's nothing there. So I just thought that was a, a thing worth mentioning because it's amazing. But, um, but anyway, sort of Laura's amazing performance, uh, you know, and then that next to what happens afterwards, which is this sort of increasing removal of Cooper's subjectivity and Cooper's presence and like how, you know, our, our complete lack of attachment to him as a character all of a sudden he becomes absent in these latter episodes and and Lee sort of supersedes him and then all of that culminates in that post-credit sequence and I'm glad you mentioned that Adam because I'd forgotten about it but the post-credit sequence where she's whispering something to him in, in his ear. And I, you know, again, that you could just say that's a sort of classic Lynchian image of, of the secret that we won't know, right? Enticing us to, to, for the secret that we're not going to know the answer to. I mean, I think that's part of it. But I also think what's so fascinating about that is that it brings us back again to what we get in episode 14 of the original run, which is that, that Laura, Laura has always had knowledge, right? I mean, if Cooper is the detective and Cooper is lacking and he's us and he's trying to get to this position of master, Laura has already always been in the position of mastery. She she leans over and whispers in Cooper's ear, you know, my father is the one who killed me. And then in the in this new post credit sequence, she seems to be whispering something else to him that that by the judging by the look on McLaughlin's face is somehow worse. Like we we never we don't know what it is, but this look of just sort of grotesque reaction on his face she is telling him something worse and it's like she is in this desired position of of knowledge but she is it's not a a good position to be in i mean this is the terror that you're speaking about adam right is like pure pure knowledge pure explanation pure jowde is is not pleasant it's not maybe where we all want to go i think that is great and again cheryl lee deserves all the awards in the world because she is amazing we uh, should probably let adam go because i know you've got a, a screening to catch all I would say by way of leaving is, you know, in addition to thank- thanking you for having me on, because in the midst of largely mediocre movies, an hour talking about Twin Peaks has been truly restorative. You know, I, oh, I, nice. I, I look and feel 25 years younger now. But I, but I, but, but, but I was also going to say that, you know, what you guys have undertaken here, the caliber of guests you've had and the level of discussion, you know, for those of us who've been watching the show, it's just been a... A real, uh, a, a real pleasure, and so to get to actually step into the, the the podcast, which has had so much good stuff on it, you know, here at the end is 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 a wonderful feeling. I'm sure your your listenership appreciates it. And I also just think we should. I mean, maybe you guys can speak to this too before I go. But like, isn't it isn't it a grateful feeling to have? Because so, we're all people who like art, we like film, we we like television, we make our livings in different ways doing this. Isn't it nice to have something worth talking about? Oh, like hell this? yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, that to me has been one of the, that to me has been legacies of this. I have a very very good friend. I'm not sure if he's going to end up listening to this, but he, he's older than I am by by about 15 years. We talk about things all the time, and while the show was on, he was talking constantly about what was driving him crazy and about its imperfections, which I don't disagree with. Even if the things that he may have found imperfect in in this case were things I enjoyed, which specifically was was McLaughlin as Dougie. But what we kept agreeing on every week when we would talk on the phone is even when he was hating what he was watching, it was worth talking about. Yeah. You can't possibly watch this unless you're watching it completely cold, right, with no investment in it. You just find it weird or bizarre. You cannot watch this and not think about it. And I just can't be more grateful to a show and its creators for something like that because sometimes trying to generate thoughts and insight and interest in the things that are put in front of us culturally is like impossible, you know? And, and this is the, I could not think of something that is more the inverse of that, where anything is possible when you think and talk about a program like this for its length, 
its breadth, its depth, its 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 context, its backstory. So I'm just you know it's so happy to get to talk about it with you guys. But I know people are having hundreds of conversations about it. You know, yeah. since it aired, and it's just such a nice feeling. I, I, yeah, I feel like you, we could not have put that better ourselves. I mean, I think that's absolutely 100% right. And I also just wanted, before you go, I just wanted to say that it's it's so lovely to have people that are, you know, worth talking to about it. I mean, again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I just, I've been so pleased to get to have an excuse, basically, to have these kinds of conversations. I mean, I think you're right, Adam. It's like, all I do is talk about Twin Peaks. But <laughs> I think it really I think it really matters that, like, we are able to have this space where we get to have these kinds of conversations and, and really hear what other people are thinking. And I have been so pleased to talk talk about it with you yeah you know don't worry all those other great television shows on are totally worth talking about as much as twin peaks right they're they're, <laughs> they're every bit they're every bit david lynch and mark frost equal all these quality television shows i'm gonna go before i get too bitter <laughs> oh adam make sure to come on our follow-up podcast about the orville <laughs> oh god I'm, I'm gonna start an ozarks podcast uh, you know ozark that, yeah, that yeah, Netflix yeah. Show? Let's, let's do an ozark podcast it's gonna be great it's, it's the um, natural listen follow-up. you guys <laughs> you, guys, you, guys, you guys are the best. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Have, have, a, have a blast at the film. It's really good. Have a blast at the film. <laughs> First reformed. I can't wait. I'll see you later. Yes, for the uninitiated, Adam is off to a, I assume, a press screening of the new Paul Schrader film, First Reformed, which I'll be seeing in about a week, but that is totally not relevant to this podcast, although I am excited about it. Um, I think it's appropriate and funny and fitting that um, while Adam was on the phone we were able to get some real-life chatter in the mix, courtesy of the seemingly very crowded uh, TIFF press galley, because um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about uh, surrounding the climax of, of 18 is yet another example of um, of Lynch doing something I, which I think is relatively new uh, in The Return versus his earlier work, and having reality sort of intercede and by that, of course, I'm referring to uh, the fact that when we get to the former Palmer home, or perhaps the future Palmer home, um, we are we are greeted by the actual homeowner. Yeah, the woman uh, who owns the house where the exteriors of the Laura Palmer of the Palmer household were first filmed. I'm not sure if she still owns it or what the deal is, but she was the woman who like owned it at the time, I believe. Um, yeah, what a, like what an unexpected move, right? I mean, I feel like there. I feel like one of the things that's been so fascinating about this finale episode is like the ways in which Lynch is playing with these levels of like dream versus reality. Because you know, you would never think like, oh well, Lynch, there's a guy you would associate with like documentary or like the move towards the real, right? I mean, that's not really his bag, and yet, like in different ways in this episode, I think it's been fascinating to see how like his fascination with dreaming and like the use of like this framework of it's all a dream and we live in a dream all of these things have in some ways like functioned to then give what happens in the finale a kind of like um necessary then re- like a uh, resulting level of quote reality right because it's like if he's if he's acknowledging certain things as a dream then it gives this space of like you know cooper in this world with with um carrie page and all of this stuff almost a necessary like oppositional level of reality and the stuff with this woman in the house does something similar right where it like it almost grounds the Palmer household again in the kind of real world in the same way that like Twin Peaks becoming every town as they drive into the town seems to do too. Um, it's so creepy. Her at the door is so creepy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and also um, we, we, I didn't mention this when we were originally talking about the, the Diane Coop sex scene, but sort of one of the more convincing sort of potential interpretations of, of that sequence that I've read 
is this notion that maybe one of the reasons the sequence is blocked in such an in such an upsetting way um where you know there's clearly no affection involved is this is the notion that what they're actually doing is trying to uh, to summon this malevolent force that we saw, which may or may not be Judy or Jode, um, by uh, by having sex, in the same sense that when uh, in in much earlier in the show when we had the is it Sam and Tracy? What was the guy's name? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think Sam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When when those characters have sex, that seems to uh, summon that malevolent force uh, t- to come after them. So that it's there. There, it might be mechanical and distance because it is uh, strictly utilitarian, and I'm not sure that I I buy that reading or 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 that it's necessarily like the certainly certainly it's not the only reason it's staged that way. But I did think that was a fascinating uh, concept. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like so much of this stuff that's going on in the finale is I think there's the double sided element to it, right? Where like it it certainly can, and some of it does make some sense in terms of a kind of plot structure stuff, right? I think. Uh, you know, Mark Frost is still very much part of this episode. Like there are, there are things that are happening here that that are connected to this larger mythos of the return. Um, that being said, I really don't think that like that that is the only stuff, right? I mean, I think this is we've talked about this many times before, but that 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 I would I would encourage people to not think only about stuff in terms of plot because I think your point there is totally right, Simon. It's like. There is, there's just no justification in that scene for like the staging and the performance and the camera work, um, and the sound and that song. Like none of that is explained by them needing to quote have sex in order to like, yeah. uh, summon up a thing, right? I mean, I, you know, that might be there, but it's like Lynch is doing so much more and getting at these larger themes of the show through all of these other things that aren't necessarily indicated by just the writing of the scene, right? Yeah. Um, like, like yeah. for instance, on paper, this notion of, and I, and I actually saw people argue oh we actually saw a happy ending because and i don't know if you yeah. saw this this argument but um you know because uh, laura is able to sort of break through and and cut the power you know so we can imagine you know for instance the the ceiling fan finally blessedly goddamn stopping <laughs> <laughs> you know um she cut the power the electricity is dead and these these currents that carry the evil um, have been have been blessedly finally destroyed by this her breaking through this realm of reality, which like on paper I can understand that, but did they watch the episode? <laughs> because yeah, exactly, like there's nothing in the staging, in the music, in the performance that suggests uh, triumph. No, and I, I yeah, it's interesting this idea of like the happy ending because I've seen a couple of different versions of that sort of claim about the finale. Um, and one of the ones I read, I don't remember who wrote it, unfortunately, but one of the ones I read was was more focused on the scene in the sheriff's office where you get the sort of um, where it all culminates with him seeing Diane and Diane coming back, and <clears throat> and and they look at the clock at one point, and the the minute hands and the hour hands are sort of like moving back and forth over each other. So time time doesn't exactly seem to have stopped, but it seems to be like stuttering or something. Um, and so that this is, I, I I think maybe this was part of the watch seventeen and eighteen together theory. I don't know, but anyway, that that because of that, you know, this is the quote real ending of the show is is seventeen, and so the things that come after it, they actually take place much earlier in the timeline because. Cooper has to go back in time for them and so blah, blah, blah. But the real ending quote of the return is what happens in the sheriff's station. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't have any stance on that. Like, what is the real ending? I, I don't know if I would try to take like a, a, um, a stance on that. But I think that 
I think that again, it's, it's worth pointing out that like Lynch is giving you more than one option here about what the ending might be, right? I mean, that like it's important to note that like because of the temporalities involved and because of all, all of this, I think it is possible to watch the end of the return and, and have a sort of like positive experience of some aspects of it. I mean, you know, we also like, this is also the show where an episode and a half prior, we had like Ed and Norma come back together and, you know, we have, we have like Dougie arrive home with his uh, family at the beginning of 18. And like, there are, there are nice things that happen here, but it also, I just think the whole point of the return and this finale is to like put pay to the idea that we could just say there's a happy ending or there's a bad ending. Right. I mean, it's like Lynch is not, does not for somebody who's so famous, for, for constantly dividing things into good and bad. I think Lynch is, is not willing to let it be that simple here, that there could be either a good ending or a bad ending or a happy ending or a sad ending. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what else we should talk about. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm suddenly, I'm at a loss because there's nothing more to anticipate. Um, we're, I know, we're finally at the end. I Look, and I'm, I, I, it's folly to guess these things, but I, I cannot imagine there's more Twin Peaks coming. I really do think uh, this is the end. Uh, Lynch is old. Everyone is old. Uh, it's yeah. a lot of work. Um, nobody watched it. <laughs> I mean, not nobody, but like by TV yeah. standards, not a lot of people watched it. It's it's a big thing to produce something like this. Um, I don't see it happening, so I am taking this as as the end. And um, you know, I mean, it w- <laughs> well, I think the maybe my final thought is that after like over thirty some odd hours of Twin Peaks podcasting thanks to the way that the return is shaken out, like I feel further away from understanding it all. Like I, I I feel like I understand less than I did when I started this podcast. (laughs) That makes any sense. Um, I mean, I feel like I I might understand less about like the world of the return or, I mean, I certainly, I certainly feel like, and and I think both Simon and I could probably cop to this. Like, as we've said, we are not the people who are like obsessively pouring over the secret history of Twin Peaks and like tracking all the numbers and all of the things that Frost is doing. Like, you know, like that, that just isn't how I engage with the show. And I, and I don't mean to knock anybody who does it that way because I think that's very much there and it's part of the experience of the show. Um, so that stuff, I feel like I probably understand less. And, but that's sort of part of the fascination with it, right? Is the idea that like I also I'm I'm comforted you know like last Sunday was kind of was was shitty like sitting around being like oh you know there's no, there's no new Twin Peaks episode like it was a sad night and I mm-hmm. and I but I, I think I'm comforted a little bit by the fact that like knowing that we have these 18 hours that like I I just I imagine that I will be going back to these at least once a year for like the foreseeable future like for the next bunch of years I imagine I will just keep rewatching these and I and all of those connections of the plot stuff will no doubt become clearer to me as I go forward and that's great um but I also, I don't know, I just, I think there's something important about that idea that, like, that we don't, this doesn't need to be thought of as some, like, desperate sad ending. I mean, I think with the time loop and all of this stuff, it's like Lynch is very much making this, again, a world that we can just be, we can feel okay about going back to over and over again. And, like, I think we something we haven't talked about as much lately on the show, um, but I think is very much there, is all of this stuff, again, about the way that formally the return has been invested in these questions of, like, digital filmmaking and, and new ways to watch television, digital watching, all of these things. And and sometimes maybe in, in um, oh, what's the term, like, uh, not quite jokey, but, like, skeptical ways about them, right? The way that Lynch is incorporating things like stuttering and uh, and skipping and stopping and all of mm-hmm. these things into the, into the experience of it. Um, you know, there's all of that, but there's also the idea that like these things are, are so much more available to us now, right? I, I do think that Lynch is aware that like one of the returns that might be being talked about here is 
the simplicity with which we can return to the show over and over again, right? This is not, this is like a radical difference from how the show was experienced 30 years ago when you might see it once if you were lucky with commercials and then you might never see it again. Or, you know, the way that we watched it when we were in our 20s, which was tracking down VHS tapes of it and like out of order and having to watch it with the wrong endings. And like, I, I just, I don't know. I do think there's something magical and comforting about the idea that now I can go back to Twin Peaks whenever I want <laughs> and watch it. Um, yeah. Well, that's a very nice sentiment. Um, we should be wrapping up. However, um, given that this is uh, probably our last episode, uh, this, this is something that Kate and I have to talk about off mic, but um, I wanted uh, to give a nod to our many, many fantastic uh, guest hosts. I actually uh, I emailed them all a little over a week ago, and I, uh, I asked them if maybe they could uh, contribute a little bit to our final episode by sharing their thoughts on the finale and or the series as a whole now that it's wrapped. To be honest, I wasn't sure if I was going to get any replies. Uh, because people are busy, but uh, surprisingly, I got a few, some in audio form and some in text form. So uh, I wanted to share those with y'all real quick. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, this clip sent in from a uh, good friend and erstwhile co-host, uh, Dr. Sarah Swain. I'm still reeling from the finale of Twin Peaks, The Return. I was profoundly unsettled, confused, and bereft after watching that last scene outside the Palmer House in Part 18. That scream was world-obliterating. It was a death knell, announcing the demise of a world I didn't know, didn't fully know, but loved. And I think the show has always been, in some sense, about death, but this season in particular. And I can't help but think about how Margaret Lanterman offers in her parting words to Hawk that death is just a change, not an end. And the world of Twin Peaks has been changing, arguably, since the first season, but the beginning of the return was so odd, so strange, and it became only increasingly unfamiliar as the season wore on. But I think it's because the world of Twin Peaks, the one we did know and love, had already died. The return is simply the process by which that show becomes something else. It doesn't just reside stable in our memories, just as we like to remember, solely to be activated when we want to think back to it or revisit it. It stubbornly persists, and it echoes. It changes, it expands, and contracts, and transforms, while weaving its way through our thoughts and our experiences, and continues to affect us in the world. And I love how the person that opens that door to the Palmer's house at the end is the property's real owner, Mary Reber. It's a kind of interjection of reality into the fabricated world of Twin Peaks. The last episode ends up becoming a kind of silen Club Silencio passage from dream world into reality, a way of announcing that the characters have now been set forth to make their way into the real world to unsettle and transform it. And that makes the return a lovely parting gift for fans, for the creators of the show and everyone involved in its making, a kind of insistence that everything that once exists has a potency to it. You know, it bears a magnitude that cannot be devalued. It cannot be disentangled from everything it has encountered. And it certainly cannot be destroyed, no matter the forces of destruction to which it is subjected, whether we're talking about Laura Palmer or Twin Peaks or life itself. Cultural forms and life forms create change from the force of their encounters. Calling in from Mexico, Byron Davies has this to say. Hi, it's Byron. I'm speaking across from the Institute of Graphic Arts in the city of Oaxaca, 
in the south of Mexico, a city where I've been for most of this year for personal reasons. Here in Mexico, Twin Peaks The Return has been broadcast on Netflix, where each new episode has been uploaded at 2 a.m. Monday morning. Nearly every week this summer, as my partner and I have tried to stay up until early Monday morning, waiting for a new episode to appear in Mexico, we've discovered the pleasures of watching The Return in a state of liminal dreaming. In a couple of months, Oaxaca will, like much of Mexico, be celebrating Dia de Muertos, the festival of the dead. As my own celebration of the dead, I want to read to you a kind of necrology, namely a list of films whose crews boasted the late Catherine E. Coulson, aka the late Margaret Lanterman, aka the Log Lady, who as we know died of cancer during the making of The Return. For most of the films on this list, Coulson worked as a assistant camera person. The first film from 1976 is a significant one, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, directed by John Cassavetes. Next, from 1977, Eraserhead. Also from 1977, Moonshine County Express. And another Cassavetes film in 1977, Opening Night. So Coulson worked assistant camera on two of the truly great films of 1977, Eraserhead and Opening Night. Next, Star Hops, directed by Barbara Peters. Youngblood. A Force of One. Modern Romance, the 1981 Albert Brooks comedy. Bitter Harvest. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. A documentary in 1986, Private Practices, the story of a sex surrogate. The 1988 Lynch short, The Cowboy and the Frenchman, which included several actors who would appear in Twin Peaks. This was Lynch's contribution to a series, The French as Seen By. IMDb lists Coulson as assistant camera on Werner Herzog's contribution to that same series, though I have not been able to verify that as she's not listed in the film's credits. Cold Dog Soup. Night on Earth, the Jim Jarmusch film, where she would have been first assistant camera in the Los Angeles unit, which would have had her again filming Gina Rollins, as she had for opening night. And finally, another documentary, Music for the Movies, Bernard Herrmann. From this list, we can see that Coulson participated in some true crests of cinema in the last four decades, up to including Twin Peaks The Return. Goodbye, Catherine Coulson, and thank you. Also, thank you to Kate and Simon for their excellent podcast and for all their hard work. Sweet dreams. We also got a contribution courtesy of Miriam Bale. Hi, Simon and Kate. Um, I'm happy to come back on the podcast to talk about the finale. This is Miriam Bale. Um, the finale or the finales 17 and 18 are um, the positive and the negative, obviously, the light and the dark. Um, the AC and the DC, or no, the DC and the AC. Um, I'll get back to that. But um, I think it was so fascinating to do it this way and to have the entire series preparing us for this science fiction about time. All the scenes with Audrey and with Billy and with dates, there was always, there were lots of clues that this was coming that there was something about time and about time 
may be about timelines happening at the same time, overlapping different timelines, which is, I think, a science fiction thing. Um, and I think that maybe that's where we've gotten by the end. I think that Carrie Page might dream of Laura, and Laura might dream of Carrie Page. And, um, and that relates to something I said when I was on the show. I wondered about The Wizard of Oz, which has had a lot of illusions, and the question being, which is Oz and which is Kansas? Is Twin Peaks Oz or Kansas? And I asked that, and now I think by the end it's very clear that Twin Peaks, or at least the Twin Peaks that we knew, both in the other season and this season, was Oz. Um, and by the end, we've gone to a Twin Peaks that is Kansas, that is back to real life. Um, there with the, it's like returning to your hometown after everything's changed and it's a long drive at night. It's really beautifully done with the double R and with the owner of the Palmer house, um, the actual owner. And we've gone into a sort of real life there, which is jarring. And, um, and I think that, um, another thing that's interesting about these two timelines is that, um, well, I have a theory about it, but I won't go too much into the theory, but I will point out that, that, that one of the most unresolved things about the finale is that sex scene between Cooper and Diane that's very nuanced and very deep. And I think maybe the actors might have different intentions than the directors, than the director and the writer. I'm not sure, but there's so much going on there and it's open to so many interpretations. But one thing that seems definitely um, clearly intended is that there's the platter song is playing, the same platter song that was playing with the God of Light guy and with the kids in New Mexico kind of falling in love and with that frog moth sort of entering in, it's maybe inseminating or something, that girl in New Mexico at the same time that Cooper and Diane are having sex. And if those two things are happening at the same time, at the same time that in New Mexico, Laura was being sent down to be hidden or as a tonic for Bob or something. Oh, another thing that's happening at the same time if that in, be, in the sex scene between Cooper and Diane is the platter song stops and it's not silent, but it's the Moonlight Sonata slowed down, which is the same song we've heard whenever the woodsmen are eating all the suffering and Bob out of Bad Coop. So both of those songs bring us back to the most eerie times in Twin Peaks. And, um, so it's it's meant to be off but also what is the connection with that scene in eight is somehow laura being conceived in these two timelines at once then and or are those on the same timeline um and uh, i'm i i could talk about this forever so all i'll say is that there are many interpretations in that scene, but one possible interpretation is that, in a way, Cooper is helping to conceive the new Laura, which means that the end is so dire, extra dire, 
if in a way that Cooper is Laura's father, then that scene with Leland saying, fine, Laura, makes it all the more creepy. I loved it. I love the end. I love the finale. I love the whole series. Everything except for maybe part five. Um, And I'll miss it. And it's been nice listening to the podcast. So thanks very much for doing it. Bye. Thank you, Miriam, for that. And we also got a couple of written statements. Uh, First one is from Matt Crooms. I know that Twin Peaks has a long future of dissertations, books, and edited collections in its wake. For now, I'll just say that its finale left me asking questions like, Where am I? Who am I? It's the kind of moment that happens in art very infrequently. At a time when cinema seems to be split between the shoddiness of the multiplex and the snobbery of the festival, I'm in awe that Lynch was able to bring an 18-hour experimental film to a mass audience. It's also becoming apparent that Lynch isn't just working on intuition, and that there are intricate narrative details and connections to be analyzed and debated. For now, I'm mostly left with the existential impact of the show, with the fact that it appeared to be taking us in the direction of safety and resolution, only to go in the most brave direction, condensing all of its horror into Laura Palmer's single moment of recognition. Many friends and academics are calling it the best show of all time, and right now, I feel like I agree. We also got uh, some thoughts from uh, Jessica Bardsley, and I'm going to read them now. I really need to watch everything again now, especially those last two episodes, so I'm not going to say anything interpretive. I mostly want to say that this entire series has, for me, been a testament to the imagination. Watching Lynch have the audacity and clarity and determination to bring this weird, unwieldy narrative to TV has seemed to me like a flag being waved to remind us all that we have been thinking too small. The return has made me more aware of the edges of, of my imagination and our cultural imagination. There's more than we see, we just need to make it. I suppose the job of artists and filmmakers can be to go to the edge of what we are accustomed to and what we can already see, and jump off to show that there is so much more all the way down. For all its pessimism, the return made more things seem possible and imaginable and visible, and for that I am very grateful. Before watching episode 18, I was also prepared to say something about how I've appreciated Lynch's punk attitude towards animation and special effects. Some of it may seem lo-fi or clunky, it's not the smooth, believable effects we are used to seeing on TV or in studio films. I think there's a real artistry to this, though, and and it somehow reminds me of of the sometimes imperfect beauty of early cinema. I often find myself thinking of Georges Méliès. Lynch is a magician who doesn't hide the mechanisms of his tricks. Somehow this becomes part of the magic for me. Also, with a rewatch and more clarity, I would ideally have something more to say about electricity. It hums throughout this entire season like some kind of life force. But something changed for me in episode 18. Episode 18 was like a poem that made all the previous episodes appear to be prose. It didn't have the artifice of the other episodes. It felt more like a dream, fluid rather than stilted, mysterious rather than mundane. I felt all of time melt. There was mystery throughout the entire season, don't get me wrong, but 18 had a different quality. I don't even know what to say about it. Diane and Cooper driving down the highway. Suddenly we are in a western, Laura's primal scream. Cooper asking what year it is. I'm still disoriented, but I'm savoring that feeling, so I might wait a while to rewatch everything. I think that's what I have enjoyed and appreciated most, discovering the strange world Lynch crafted for us. I felt so uncritical of this entire series, instead just experiencing the journey. I don't have the feeling of, oh, I wish this had happened, or this was too much this one way. I've just been reveling in the gift of it. 
my only complaint, I guess, is that I wish the gift could go on forever. And friends, the gift cannot go on forever because it just can't. Nothing can. So, uh, yeah, that's that's about it from us, uh, at least for now, and maybe forever. But you don't get to know yet. You're just going to have to wait. I will say, though, that if you go on iTunes and rate and review the show, this is our last appeal, probably, uh, I will say that if you do that, I will personally visit you in some dimension or another and tell you who Judy is. Um, <laughs> I guess we should just say goodbye, which I am clearly wanting to avoid because I don't, <laughs> I don't want the podcast to be over. Um, yeah, I think I, yes, yeah, Simon and I have to talk about the possibility of there maybe being one more episode and that may or may not happen. So we'll figure that out and let people know if it's going to happen. But, um, just in case it doesn't, I think for now, uh, we should just say that it has been super, super enjoyable to have this, um, chance to talk about the show, both with the audience members who've been lovely and wonderful and our really, truly stunning guests. And, um, Simon Howell, who has done an incredible job editing this podcast and has done so much work and has given so much of his own time to make it possible. And I really am going to miss it very much. And I'm grateful that we got to do this. So thanks. Yes. Simon. And thanks to everyone who's listened and reviewed and tweeted at us and uh, people over at ILX who've said that they've been listening and I've, it's, it's been a blast and uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm bad at uh, saying goodbye and stuff. So goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> now this is all rough, but that's all right, isn't it? We don't have. I'm, I don't have to do a performance. Here. This is a living room rehearsal. Feel so bad, I got a worried mind. I'm so lonesome all the time. Since I left my baby behind, gone blue by blue. Save a nickel, save a dime. Work until the sun don't shine. Looking forward to happier times. On blue by you I'm going back someday Come what may do blue by you Where the folks are fine And the world is mine On blue by you Where those fishing boats With their sails afloat if I could only see that familiar sunrise through sleepy eyes, how happy I'd be. Gonna see my baby again, gonna be with some of my friends, and maybe I'll feel better again. Save a nickel, save a dime. Work until the sun don't shine. Looking forward to happier times on.